Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy, and joining me for this episode of Tape Notes are Imagine Dragons to talk about how they wrote, recorded, and produced the album Mercury, Act One. Imagine Dragons are a genre-defying American band from Las Vegas, Nevada, consisting of lead singer Dan Reynolds, guitarist Wayne Sermon, bassist Ben McKee, and drummer Daniel Platzman. The band formed in 2008, supporting their creative endeavors by playing in casinos and music venues across Las Vegas. Quickly earning a name for themselves thanks to their emotionally charged performances, they began self-releasing their own music as a series of EPs. In 2011, they were signed by producer Alex DeKid to his label Kid in a Corner, making their major label debut with the Continued Silence EP via Interscope Records. It topped the US Heatseekers charts and featured what would go on to become their breakthrough singles, the platinum-selling It's Time, chart-topping Demons and Grammy-winning Radioactive, all of which featured on their debut album Night Visions, released in 2012. Following a world tour and several further awards, the band headed back to the studio with producer Alex DeKid, releasing their second record, Smoke and Mirrors, in February 2015. The album reached number one on the US, UK and Canadian album charts and took them back on the road once again for their second global tour. Now with five studio albums, four live albums and numerous charting singles to their name, the band's endless creativity, combined with an honest and open approach, has kept them at the forefront of popular music. Their latest instalment, Mercury Act One, working with executive producer Rick Rubin, is no exception to this, channeling more personal emotion and far-reaching influences than ever before. Today, I'm at home in Morden, South London, and I'm joined by Dan and Wayne from their respective homes in Las Vegas. And what better way to start our conversation than by hearing something from the record? This is my life. I wish on a star for another life Cause it feels like I'm all on my own tonight And I find myself in pieces There are pills on the table and a thought in my head And I walk through the halls where I used to be led My heart is filled with reasons I'm trying to be somebody else I'm finding it hard to love myself I've wanted to be somebody new But that is impossible to do I'm running out of my mind Is this really my life? I'm running out of It is My Life by Imagine Dragons, the opening song on the new album Mercury Act one and I'm very pleased to say that Dan Reynolds and Wayne Sermon from Imagine Dragons are hooked up to me online. Hello, how are you? Good. Doing great. How are you? I'm very well. And so where are you? We are probably five houses from each other in Las <laughs> Vegas. We live <laughs> uh, up two blocks away from each other. But I go over on my scooter all the time to his house. <laughs> I think I just <laughs> scooted over there a couple of days ago. Yeah. It's very dignified. <laughs> That's great. Thanks so much for being here. It's really exciting to be able to talk to you and especially about the new album. My Life's the opening song on the album. We're going to talk about three of the other songs on the album. But the first question I have in my mind is 
when you have billions of streams of your songs, when all of your records have gone to number one, how do you approach album number five? And where's the motivation? How do you approach it? What do you think you're going to be doing with it? You know, I think we do very little thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The one thing we've learned throughout the years is it's really easy to overthink. And that usually leads to a bad result. We try to just take what's at hand and deliver it in the way that it wants to be delivered. And sometimes that is in its most general state, like its birth state, like the vocals that were there in the beginning, the scratch guitar that was recorded through an iPhone, or sometimes it's in a studio setting with with a, a lot of time and a lot of takes. So yeah, I think it, it's just, uh, we try to not think about uh, things and more go by feel. Yeah, and so, I mean, do you plan ahead? Do you think, right, we're gonna do an album, we better start thinking about it, or do you kind of write all the time and things just stockpile and and then you think well you know what we've got some songs here we should do something with these oh yeah no that i mean that's i think that's the benefit of always writing uh music is that you don't have to like assign these chunks of you know album one two three years always doing it and it's also i've noticed that when you start and stop writing it's like anything else you get out of practice with it and like you kind of lose something so we're constantly doing it you know, the times that I've stopped trying to produce tracks and stuff, I've taken, if I take like a month or two off, I kind of get rusty and slower. And that's just a benefit of always doing it is that you don't have to play the mind games with yourself. Yeah. And in terms of recording and producing, I mean, with this record, you've got Joel Little, who you've worked with before, but also Rick Rubin involved in production. But you also produce things yourselves. You know, you're used to kind of being very hands-on in that way. So... What happened this time around? I mean, how did you work out you wanted to get those people involved? So the typical process for every record, and and this record is no exception, is throughout a two-year period, in this case it was three years, I would write almost every day something. So I would either get on Ableton and produce a track myself and write to it, or Wayne continually every week would send me three or four tracks that he would write in a week. And during that time period also, Joel Little sent me, he sent me three tracks or something. And I wrote on, I believe two of them. And then one of them was Follow You in its early stages. And then every time I write a song and I would finish it in a demo state, I would do it in a day typically. And then I would send it to the band through email and everybody would just listen to it and have thoughts and comment on it. This goes on for a two to three year period. And then when it comes time that we say, okay, we want to actually get in a studio together, we then always have hundreds of songs to, you know, demos to comb through. And then we we wanted to get into a studio and work with a producer. And we've self-produced a lot. Obviously, we self-produced through those years, getting those demos ready. But then we got into the studio with Rick Rubin. He said, do we have anything that you guys want to start with? Do you have any songs that we, or do you want to jam it out together? And we were like, no, we have, I think we said we have a lot of songs. He said, send me all of them. I said, well, it's hundreds of songs. <laughs> he said, wait, what are you talking about? So we have hundreds of songs. This is, this is the process and kind of explained it to him. He said, well, send me all of them. I said, okay, well, I'm not going to send you all of them. We'll send you 70. <laughs> so then we sent Rick <laughs> 70 songs and he listened to all of them. And within a week responded with comments on every single song. And he was really spot on and had a lot of interesting thoughts. And that's when we both decided together, let's do this record together. And that's kind of how the process happened. 
Yeah, really interesting. And and were his comments along the lines of constructive criticism, or they were they? I like this one, or you know, how in depth did he go with the comments? Very in depth, very in depth. It was like every song had like a paragraph written about it. Definitely criticism, whether it'd be like this song is too in the box for me. I don't really like this. It was boring. He would say it maybe a little more pleasant than that, but not that different than that, to be honest with you. <laughs> or he would say, there's something really interesting here, but I think we need to pull apart all the production. Or he would say, I can't tell if I like the song because I just like the production or if I actually like the song. So he made comments about all these songs in different ways. And then when we got into the studio, we all talked and we gravitated towards about 30 songs that we all liked. And we got there actually by him having us play the majority of those songs on just an acoustic guitar and me singing or a piano and me singing. That way to differentiate, okay, is it the production that we like about this or is this actually a good song? And then uh, a lot of songs got chopped off from there or actually made the cut that we didn't think would make the cut because suddenly we saw, wow, there's something actually really cool here and the production wasn't serving it well. So that was the first thing that Rick brought to the table was deconstruct everything from a very barebone, basic melody, chord progression, period. Can it stand with that? If not, it's gone. Wow, really, really interesting. I think that prompts so many questions in my mind that I think those questions will be answered as we go through the music, I think. So maybe we should start getting into the music. So Dull Knives is the first song from the album that we're going to go through. And we're going to hear a bit of the master now, and then we'll be able to unravel it after that. I'm holding my breath, holding so tight, nothing is wrong, nothing is right, I'm in the dark, looking for light, won't someone please save my life? Inside I'm a mess, but I don't let it show, just hanging on. But you never know I smile all day And cry through the night Won't someone please save my life Is fleeting It is Dull Knives then by Imagine Dragons and what a brilliantly dynamic tune that is. Did it start like that? Was it always going to be such a, a dramatic song? I'm trying to remember, Wayne, did that start at my house or did it start at your house? You did that. Okay. Yeah. So I started that here. So I was actually sitting with my wife, Asia, on that song and we were working together and she was really pushing me to, to let go which I feel like is a theme of this record because Rick pushed me on that a lot too. I really have a hard time being vulnerable. It's hard for me, especially after five albums, to not hide behind metaphors. And that has been one of my biggest weaknesses as a writer when I look back. I listen to it and I say, well, I was afraid to confront a lot of things and because um, I didn't want my family to hear it or I didn't want the world to hear it now at this point. In the beginning, it was just my family, right? Like nobody was listening but my family. So I wasn't going to write a song about dealing with a religious crisis because I didn't want my mom to sit me down and say, why are you singing about a religious crisis? Are you having a crisis of faith? I didn't want to talk to my mom about that, you know, when I was 13 yeah. or whatever. 
And that perpetuated into my adulthood. But Asia, my wife, is she's an incredible artist herself. She really would continually push me to just go there. Say whatever you're thinking. Don't bury it in metaphor. Let the emotion really be raw. And then Rick then reinforced that and beat down that door over and over on the record. And that's a, a different story. But the idea that came out and it was close to what it what it is here. And then I sent it over to Wayne. And then Wayne added real guitars to everything. Brought in the, this guitar solo, which is my favorite solo on the record. I think it's my favorite solo he's ever done. I love the solo guitar solo on this record. I love the tone of his guitar too. It's really, it just crunches in all the ways that you want it to. And then we sent it to Platzman and Ben. So this is very COVID-y uh, creation, what was going on here over the internet waves. And they then added live drums and bass at Platzman's studio, sent it back to us. Wayne then put everything together. Wayne is always kind of the, the quiet storm of Imagine Dragons that is, is a very much yin to my yang and how we create. But uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's how it started. Yeah. And so, I mean, is that regarded as a demoing process or is that regarded as making... The record, because it sounds like with all of your four different setups, and if you're able to record drums properly, and that you know you've all got this nice setup at home where you can really create and achieve a certain standard that you know maybe you wouldn't need to go into a studio together at all. Uh, depends on the song. Dull knives. Rick was more of an executive producer on that track. He was like, this track is great and needs to be on the record. I don't know that it would have made the record if Rick didn't push it. So he definitely was a visionary in that way. I think we brought that into the studio and Rick was like, okay, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. what are we going to do? I love this. He was like, I love this. I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to do anything to it. He helped with the mixing of it when we started to mix it. He had comments about different things. He wanted to take off verb. We had some throws on the vocals that he had us take off. He wanted it to be very raw. He liked how raw this song was, and he didn't he didn't mess with this one a lot. Yeah. And so, I mean, is there a demo of Dull Knives that we can hear? You know, is there the first demo that you were working on down at, at home before you sent it to Wayne? Or you know, Wayne, do or you have? I mean, he probably has it in the stems, too. You know what I mean? It's like, I think it's probably just what it was minus, it probably was yeah, fake drums, no guitars, or me just doing guitars with my mouth. I think I typically yep. do when I'm wanting, like I'll be like, da na 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 and then I'll put yeah. distortion on it and stuff. And bass was fake bass, if I recall. And when, you, when you're doing your, your fake guitars with your mouth, I mean, are you putting that on a separate track? And Oh, I track it, yeah. And we typically just always throw it away. Every once in a while, like I think on Wrecked, actually, it made the record. <laughs> but it's very atypical. And honestly, there's the majority of the time, actually, I don't do any guitars and then Wayne will just do guitars. But there are songs where it's like a heavy rock song where I'm like, I want a wall of noise and I'm not getting, I need it in the demo state in order to get where I need to get vocally. And then I'll send it to Wayne and Wayne will graciously take it out <laughs> and then create some real I don't know though. I mean, there's times when it just works. You know what I mean? I don't know what it is. I think there's something about the human voice that emotes so much that like a, a guitar tries to do sometimes. I don't know. I've over the years as a writer, producer, as whatever, I've just learned it's like if it sounds good, it's right. And it doesn't matter where it came from. And like there's I actually did keep some of Dan's vocal stuff in here. We can maybe talk about that. Oh, geez. But I think the first thing that I pretty much tackled was just that opening riff 
that was Dan using a contact guitar. And I just, I basically kept the MIDI guitar on the left and then copied it on the right. So there's real guitar on the left. And then that's the MIDI on the right. And I and just together, just kind of sounds nice and fast. So I sometimes will just augment what's already there. And then, yeah, here's some wishes now that since we were talking about. So that right there was, uh, it sounds like a pick scraping a guitar string, but it's just Dan like messing with his vocal and messing with, I think it's Ableton's stock amp, one of the stock amps that you just yeah, crank up. So that coupled with, you know, the real guitars doing the same thing, it just makes everything sound bigger. And so if it works, I'm keeping it. Yeah. It must be quite intuitive when you're making the guitar sounds with your mouth, Dan, you know, because it's just kind of instant, isn't it? It's yeah, so pure in that sense. I like that you say instant because that my whole embodiment of creation, my goal of any time I sit down in this room is I have something in my head and the quicker my download, my upload rate is, the better the whole process is. The more I think about it, the more I'm trying to achieve something that I hear, the more lost in translation it gets. I want to take this feeling that I have right now and capture it as quickly as I can. It's like catching a butterfly. And by the way, they're not all butterflies. The majority of the time, I'm like catching a rock. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and I like catch it and I'm like, well, that sucked. Well, great. Well, good job. Like throw it into the rock bucket. And that's like 95% of this. And I'm okay with that because I'm doing it for me. It's cathartic for me. I need to say something today that I can't say without music. So let me go say that. And the majority, like I said, like 95% plus, we've I've written thousands of songs and we've released, I don't know, less than a hundred maybe. Mm. So the majority will, you know, are not to be heard. Yeah. But that process of getting it out quickly is very important to me. Yeah. Well, if you're doing this every single day and Wayne is working on song ideas, you know, that's going to create an awful lot of material, isn't it? It does. And, we, and you wouldn't do that unless you love it, you know? And that's my, anytime we meet, Anybody, I feel like the question is always like, I'm an aspiring musician, or my daughter's aspiring, my cousin's aspiring, everybody knows an aspiring musician. It's always, can you give advice? And I always just say, write, write every day, write, write, write. And then at the end of the day, if you love it, then you'll do it. If you don't love it, you won't. You'll fall to the wayside because it will be work. And that's not what art is meant to be. And if you love it, then you'll continue to do it, even if you're broke forever, you know? Yeah, you'll be <clears throat> compelled. So, what else should we hear then, Wayne? as we dig into it. I can show you uh, Dan's demo drums that we had to, you know, it was all MIDI sounding stuff and so it needed to be replaced and, you know. Just lacked human value. Yeah, had some human value. So these were the drums. I just play that on a MIDI keyboard. Yeah, so that's just a contact uh, drum set. I think that's drum lab, drum lab on contact. Yeah, um, and so essentially we we set out to try and beat him, and so I, Platz, our drummer, Platzman, has a <laughs> pretty marvelous setup. He has a giant dome, and I mean giant by probably, what, 60 feet across, 60, 70 feet high. The neighbors were very like unhappy a, wow. in Las Vegas. Where's that? In his back garden? It, it, yeah. yeah. It's in his backyard. Yeah, it's in his backyard, <laughs> and it uh, looks a lot like an observatory. I, I imagine most people think it's some kind of telescope room. But, you know, it's just a huge bait recording studio. He's turned it all into a recording studio. And so wow. he's able to get great sounding drums in the room. And so 
basically here's the drums soloed that we did I did quite a bit of work on the drums to get them to sound like that. Basically, just abuse a lot of plugins. Uh, it's a plugin called Black Box. I think it's mostly for like, you know, mix buses to fatten up a mix, but I use it all the time for everything. It's called Analog Design Black Box. And then for the kick, I will use a plugin called the App Trigger, which I use it to sample replace things on snares and kicks sometimes. So. Uh, this is the kick group for the drums, which is, I use uh, the UAD SSL E channel strip to uh, compress into EQ the kicks. Um, snare group I did a lot as well. I, I love the uh, Devil Lock by SoundToys. I think everyone uses their plugins. They just sound incredible. But I think the Devil Lock is trying to mimic the old Shure uh, level locks that were from the 70s or 80s or something. And they just snatch everything to smithereens. They're very not subtle, and I like not subtle. So um, <laughs> without the double lock, it sounds like this. And with it. So it just, you know, makes everything sound mean. It's crunchy. Like, that was the attitude yeah. of the song was just, there's nothing subtle about the song. So I wanted to represent that in the drums as well, so. Um, the symbols in the song are very important to the song, but I also want to make sure that the vocals cut a lot. And so on the cymbal group, there's this plugin called uh, Track Spacer. And essentially what it does is that you can just put it on the cymbal bus and say, here's Dan's vocal part. Between like 1K and 3K, I just want you to get out of the way. So it basically just ducks the EQ. I did that to a lot of different things. Guitars. I think I even put it on the entire mix minus Dan's vocals as I just... Find out where Dan's the main like crux of his tone is coming from, and then I'll just literally just say, "Don't get in the way of that." And uh, I reserve that just for Dan's voice, which makes it cut no matter how aggressive it gets. Yeah, I mean that's really interesting because um, you know Dan's voice is such an important part of Imagine Dragons and and all the songs, be it multi Dan's or or the band singing at once, but or Dan singing solo. But it's always such a a crucial part of the Imagine Dragons sound. Yeah. You know, Wayne, uh, his mix of this song, his rough mix that he did, you know, because he'll always kind of put together a rough mix. And then we, Serban did the majority of this record. And a lot of our work has been with Serban, who's a fantastic mixer. But uh, Wayne's rough mix is what made the record because it just, we couldn't beat it. And we tried. Serban tried. and We were talking about getting t-shirts made that said, I beat a Serban mix. Yeah. <laughs> we were really excited about that. Serban is a wizard. He's so good. He's so good. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it looks like on guitars I did the same thing. So here's the guitars on the record during the chorus. And if you can see my screen right now, there's a track spacer that looks like it's between 800 hertz and like 1200 hertz that's just carved just for Dan's vocal there too so that was actually at our studio we it's the studio we've done all of our stuff in since Smoke and Mirrors uh, we actually bought a studio our band studio together we bought a house <laughs> it's a house that we converted into a studio and we looked at probably 10 to 15 houses in Las Vegas 
And this one just had the best acoustics, had the best dimensions. Uh, it wasn't necessarily in the best neighborhood, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, that was just a Les Paul, I believe, and a Vox AC30 on 10 uh, with a 57 and a Royer pointed at it. And uh, I did the same thing for the solo. I think I used a, a Les Paul and a Marshall Shredmaster pedal and a some kind of fuzz pedal. I don't remember the fuzz pedal, but I just, everything was just on 10. Just, I just cranked everything all the way up. It was fun to do that. I don't, this song in particular was like really fun as a band because we have so many synths. We have so many samples in our music. Like we layer things so much that we have to like hire people on stage to do those parts. This was just a song that it's like, okay, what does it sound like when the, there's just four people playing? It's just Dan, Ben, Platts, and me. And the solo... I tend to get really meticulous with my solos, but this one just, I think this is probably the second or third take that I did. And it just felt right, so I just kept it. Oh yeah, before I get to the, to the solo, I wanted to kind of have that feeling of people like rehearsing, keep that garage band feel. Like I remember in high school, like you'd have your friends over and it'd be like kind of a party, you'd play some music and like it'd be kind of a hang. And so I actually found some free samples of just, people at a party and like people at a band rehearsal. No royal. <laughs> I never knew this till now. I, th- I thought that was just you and like friends or something. And like, no, no, I don't have friends. Remember? <laughs> Here's what it sounds like. <laughs> so that's your crew. I genuinely thought you had friends over. We've never talked about this. And I was like, Oh, that's cool. With the drums. I loved the Weezer stuff growing up, like the Blue Album was like so Weezer upbringing, and so I I kind of wanted to harness that energy to, uh, for the solo. Yeah, so the vocal I, I have to talk about Dan's vocal here for the chorus. So one of the notes we got from like the, you know people that we showed it to, like they were you know mixers or whoever was like, wow. Can you send me a version without that distortion on the vocal? <laughs> and I always said no, because Dan purposefully, he has a Neve 1073 at home and he just blasted the thing. He completely clipped it. <laughs> and so I love the way it sounded. And so I, I never wanted to redo it. But if you solo it, it, this is what Dan sent me with nothing on it. So I mean, it was pretty much there already. All I did was add a little bit of black box saturation to it, and I, I basically just mixed in 
some reverb and delay toward the end of phrases that's really, really subtle. So it's all together, it sounds like this with all the processing on it. So So there's no, there's really no saturation or distortion plugins. It's all just analog, crunchy goodness. That's what really makes the song, and it gives it the intensity. So I thought that was one of the key parts of the song. But I mean, what a vocal performance! And that is just done in the room that you're speaking to us from, um, yeah. on your setup. And and that's the interesting thing with this track is, as you were saying, it's Weezer, but it's also Pearl Jam or Nirvana, or you know, it could come from Seattle, circa '92 or something. You know, it is another dimension of what Imagine Dragons are like, and it's such a heart wrenching performance. So that that vocal that you did on your own is the one that ended up on the record, aided and abetted with a few little things. Yeah, this this is one of my favorite songs on the record because it just embodies depression for me. Like, it's like this numb, and I've, you know, I've been really vocal about this for a long time, and I think I'm, I really am a proponent of mental health and speaking openly about these things, because I think all of our kids should be in therapy. Personally, that's my thought. So for me, when I first experienced depression in middle school, I didn't understand that. I always thought depression was just when someone said they were sad, and I was like, okay, well, everybody's sad, you know? And then when I really first experienced it, when I was about 15 years old, 14 years old, it was numb. It was gray. Everything I liked before had no meaning to me. Every conversation felt like an echo chamber, like I couldn't even focus, like this grayness. And it just felt like just dying slowly from like a spoon. And so for me, this song, and one of the things that Asia pushed me to identify was to really go and identify what it felt like and try to put it into music. That's what this song was all about, was identifying what it feels like to be in the mind of being depressed for a long time and dealing with the ups and downs, but mainly just when you're really in that gray space for a long time. And it just feels so like you want to just rip it apart and you're just like, so this song was all about capturing that feeling in its raw form, like just capturing, capturing that feeling. And I love this song because I listen to it and I, and I feel it. I really feel what happened that day for me when we did it. And, and that happens a lot for us where I, I really can't recreate the vocal. We'll try to recreate the vocal and be like, you know, this is clipping or this is this. Let's try to get into it or let's get into a like the compressions grabbing your entire big ass room that you're in right now. Can we please get you in a vocal booth? Like we've had those conversations and sometimes we can get in there and I can go to the place I need to go and I can channel it. But I'm a really poor actor. I cannot bullshit for the life of me. I can't do it. So if it's not real for me, it's very evident and it just sounds shitty. So a lot of times we'll just keep the vocal from the room. A lot of our biggest songs were a vocal that were the original take, you know, that wasn't like the way you're supposed to do it, you know. Yeah, but we get so much feeling and so much emotion from that. And it's so important and so great that you're able to capture it and catch that moment and catch that performance. And yet in, in terms of the, the lyrics for the song, Dan, I mean, it, you know, have you got them all worked out then? And, you know, when you're running through your take, have you built up the tracks already before you do the vocal take? Or, you know, how far do you push those kind of demos that you're doing at home? So I, I always do the lyrics as I'm creating. It's like, 
hand in hand, every step of the way, every chord progression, every beat that is being laid is also with a melody. It's almost like it's just building a Lego thing or something. They come together for me. So I've never, like I know some writers have poetry and then they take the poetry and they put it to words. Or, or I've heard other musicians who, you know, they listen to a track and then they write the whole thing, blah, blah, blah. And I'm also feeling an emotion that is either given to me from the soundscape that's been given and it triggers something that I'm going through in my life and it just like comes at the same time. Or in this case, you know, it's like, I, in fact, now that we're listening to it and really going over it, I remember sitting here and getting that doom da doom da doom da And it always is like a, a melody first that kind of has some made up words. So it's like, you know, it's not always like perfect, like I'm getting every melody and I stick with it as it comes, but it's something like that. And then I'm trying to understand like, what is this that I'm feeling? And then I'm just putting it into words. And in the past, I would be much more careful to, you know, qualify it with poeticness or, or metaphoric cover-up. Like, I really, like, again, going back, that's my biggest flaw when I listen to earlier stuff is I would say, okay, well, this is what I'm feeling, but I definitely am not going to say that because hell no, am I going to say that? And then I know that this song is going to be heard by somebody and they're going to ask me about that and I don't want to talk about that. And frankly, I don't want you to be peeping through my journal in the first place, <laughs> you know? So, but I think as I get older and I see vulnerability is a really beautiful thing and the most, I'm more, it's my focus of life. And it's Rick Rubin's focus was just honesty, vulnerability, period. So it was a really good match for us on this record. And, um, so then when I was creating these songs, you know, already before we even worked with Rick, I knew that my intention for this record was to be just more direct. Like Cat Stevens is my favorite singer-songwriter. Whether it was like Father and Son, which was like the first song that made me fall in love with music and the directness of those lyrics, you know what he's talking about. It's not clouded in anything and you feel it and it shook me to hear that. Yeah, wow, amazing. And so receiving these missives, Wayne. Now, what are you picking up on when you respond to what Dan might send you? Are you picking up on the meaning and the message, or are you thinking, oh, that's a really cool tune. I, I can't wait to put some guitar with this. No, I, I, there's times when I'm not sure exactly what he's getting at, but on this track, I knew exactly what he was talking about. I knew just the visualization of like a dull knife stabbing you in the spine, and I've suffered with depression too in my life, and I've you know been on and off depression medication my teenage years were really tough for me. And as far as depression, I've, I've done a little bit better in older age, but this is a song where I knew exactly what he was talking about. And it's interesting how accurate it is to how it feels. To me, it was the feeling of that, but like it felt like such a catharsis too. It felt like Dan was fighting it actively, like he wasn't being a victim of it. And so I wanted to make sure that sonically, it felt like I wanted to like rock my head to it. It's not a woe is me song either. It's a song about empowering and saying, frankly, fuck you, and I'm going to keep fighting, and I'm not going to let this own me. It just feels like that kind of a song. And so, yeah, hopefully we honored that original vision of it. And I think, I mean, it's my favorite song on the record, so. Yeah, totally. Well, it's fiery, it's feisty, it's extreme, and yet probably mirrors the extremity of that pain that people might feel if they were going through this, but then also brings in that fight element that they're trying to battle it and get through it and get beyond it which is quite an achievement, you know, within a four-minute song. 
Yeah, I hope it resonates to that, like that, to people. You know, the the thing about rock music is, is, and we've always been qualified as a rock band, which is it's kind of laughable to me because I grew up listening to much more pop singer songwriters and hip hop. My rock influences were '90s grunge, so there definitely is Nirvana and Pearl Jam in there. But I'm not a classic rock. Wayne grew up on classic rock. But we're four people that play our instruments, you know, and we and we write our own songs. And my voice is, I'm a baritone who doesn't sing as a baritone. So my voice is quite gritty. And all of those things, you know, qualify as a rock band. But one of the reasons that I feel like I typically don't like to try to write rock music is I'm really concerned with melody, the melody shining through. And it's really easy to write a rock song that's non-melodic. Like, it's easy to just write a heavy song and scream and there's a place for that but that's not what i'm interested in like i'm interested in like graceland by paul simon like i'm melody and i want to hear every word and i'm so curious about all these words but the thing about dull knives and the reason it made the record is because it's still like when we took apart everything and we just played that song softly the melodies shined through and it felt very melodic. It's like Creep by Radiohead. Like I listened to that song and it's very melodic. And yet it's heavy when they play that live. And so if it can be melodic and heavy, it's fun. That's interesting to us. And that's kind of what Dole Knives does on this record. Yeah, totally. Um, I think we should hear another blast to the master and then and we'll move on to the next song we're going to look at. You may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in, as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labelling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organise set lists and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favourite features within Tapeit Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tapeit sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favour. 
pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give tape it a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off tape it pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. So the next song we're going to look at from Imagine Dragons Mercury Act 1 is It's OK. And we've learned so far that in some ways we have Rick Rubin as executive producer. He's almost like your your listening post, your soundboard to kind of run things by and, and he kind of gives you the feedback, gives you the the kind of wisdom of his experience. But you achieve so much before it ever gets to Rick. That's what I find fascinating is that, you know, you work so much on the tracks, you know, that by the time he gets to it, it's already, you know, very evolved. What was the process with It's OK? Should we, should we hear the, the finished version and then start to unpick it? Sure, yeah. Why don't we play a little bit of it first and then I'll dive in. She could always hear every word they say. Everybody walks like they just know the way. Every single day, holding back the tears. She'd never say a word. It's a beautiful contrast to Dull Knives, isn't it, with It's OK. And you mentioned singer-songwriters. I mean, I, I hear a kind of singer-songwriter thing coming through on this one, or maybe even Shades of Donovan, or, or I mean, if you're pulling oh, from that kind of Cat Stevens, Donovan era, I hear a little Love bit of Donovan. that in this. Yeah, that's great. Um, so how did this one start then? So this song is a, was a journey for sure. <laughs> it began with a track that Wayne had worked on at his house that he sent me. And it was originally called Dysfunctional Family, if I recall. We really liked parts of the melody and the feeling, but it just did not work. For some reason, it just didn't feel interesting enough or something. And that was just the general consensus we were sitting with. It. We were like, man, I really like this chorus. I don't know about the verse. Something's not right. you know. And we showed it to Rick. And this is one where Rick Rubin really got involved. This was like big time. Rick listened to it. I actually remember the first time we listened to it, Rick started smiling when it got to the chorus and I, he was chuckling to himself and I was terrified. This was one of the first days we were together in the studio and I was just like, oh my gosh, what is Rick going to tell me? Like, he thinks it's funny. Like, I don't, I, I, he's laughing. He hates it. He thinks it's trite. Like, I just had no idea what he was saying. And it ends and he said, this is great. He was like, this is great. It's not right how it is right now. It's two in the box, but there's just so much potential here. And by the way, I never asked him why he was laughing because <laughs> 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 I didn't, I don't know if I wanted to know the answer, but my feeling that I got from him was 
it's such a simple concept. It's been said a million times in a million different ways by a million different people. But it just feels good on this song. It just feels good. And it was uh, something about the way it's said with the kind of the pyramid melody that's up and down and like very simple, but it just feels like you want to sing along with it. Anyway, Rick kind of hit that home and was like, listen, I want you to reapproach this. And he sat me down and he was like, I want you to reapproach this, but reapproach it with um, more organic and interesting Feel where the song wants to go. Take off everything but just the vocal and just rebuild from there. But why, I'll turn it over to Wayne. Why don't we dig in first to what the original demo was and then I'll go from where it went from there. Yeah. Yeah, so for this record, we actually uh, got to work with Andrew Tolman, which was, he actually used to be the drummer for the band uh, back maybe seven years ago at this point. But I've started writing with, writing with him as a writing partner for something. So it was kind of cool to be able to to work with uh, him again and get him back involved a little bit here and there. So I actually wrote this demo with him and then sent it to Dan. And uh, I'm actually a little nervous to hear because I haven't heard it in such a long time. I actually I don't, remember. don't remember what it sounds like, really. I don't know about you. Uh, let's just preface also that a lot of times when we're writing, we're conscious of demos. Like we're trying to just get things done. So it could sound pretty <laughs> demo-y. We'll see. Right? We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Cool, honestly, like I don't mind it. The swing of it's the same. Yeah. Longer verse. Rick wanted us to cut this verse in half, which became the bridge. Yeah, this became the bridge. But even this is new. Oh no, that's in the bridge too. Yeah. the chorus it's okay to be not okay. so kind of like a string thing going on here it still feels good like you can hear but it doesn't have like the organic kind of take a walk on a wild side like vibe that it goes into Kind of being driven by like snaps. So it really was just based around a synth chord progression with a drum loop. Yeah, and I feel like, yeah, as Dan was saying, it just wasn't right. And so basically Rick was like, this is a great song hidden behind production. It's not right. So this is one. And it was a couple times it happened where Dan would just lock himself. There was like a little five by five room in Rick's studio. And Dan was very, he likes to write by himself. He likes to record himself singing. He doesn't like a lot of people in the room. He doesn't like anyone telling him necessarily like, oh, do this, do that. He's very like in his own place. And so he just found this little tiny room that he felt like he could isolate himself in. And he just basically started doing all this great production on this track, basically transformed the song just on his own. And then um, I remember him bringing it back in when he was, he had spent the day working on the song and just, I was just blown away by the transformation that it made. It felt like it finally made sense to me. And so it was really thrilling. So really at that point, it was just a matter of doing little bells and whistles and making sure everything was right. 
Do you have that version? That's I mean, the, the, it's really close. That version is really close to what we have now. I, I, we just added some layers, and that's really all we did. So what happened was, um, it's funny because now that we're listening to it, I remember when Rick was listening to the demo, Rick is really rhythmically, rhythm is everything to him. And he wants to listen to the song, and he wants to be able to do this. Like, he wants it to be like, not to say there even needs to be a rhythm, right? He's done lots of stuff that's just, there's no rhythm, but he feels like the flow is so important to him. And that doom, ka, ba, ka, ba, doom, ka, doom, ka. He really didn't like how choppy it was. He felt like he just couldn't like feel the rhythm of it. So I remember him also being like emphasizing like it needs to flow. And for me, my primary influence on this was, I remember when I went in there, I was like, it feels like it wants to be in the world of like take a walk on the wild side. It just feels easy. It's like the words on this song and how it's saying in the verse is very easy. Every single day. Like very just like off the cuff kind of thing. So I grabbed a basket of percussion. There was like a basket that Rick had that just had like shakers and conga and like just different stuff in it. Grabbed an acoustic guitar. And then I went into the room and I started, it actually started with, I just was, which is, this is a very typical thing for me. I'll just comb through tons of samples and I may not even be looking to use a sample, but maybe just to be like influenced by it or I hear it and it makes me think of this or something. And I came across this sample of an upright bass. And it was like just playing around. And then I, I was like, wow, that's like exactly the feeling that I want. So I chopped it up. You can hear slight chops in it. And then I pitched it as well. Yeah, Ableton's always so good with that stuff. So easy. Yeah, and there's some like riffs on it that are really chopped up. <laughs> that sound kind of weird, but they're kind of cool sounding. So anyway, so I started with that. I got it to a very basic bare bones place where it had like the upright bass. I think it has a little bit of acoustic guitar kind of vibes and then some shakers. And then Rick, I think, was it Rick's idea for the marimba or was that you, Wayne? The, the, or the, the finger plucker? What is that thing yeah, called? Yeah, you, you did that. It's a, a thumb piano. Oh, it's, yeah. What's the, not a marimba, but it's a Embira, is it? Yeah, yeah. Embira, that's what it is. Yes. Yeah. It was awesome. But I actually, Melodyne actually saved me a couple times on this session. Because as awesome as it sounded, the overtones were super weird. So, so weird. It made everything sound slightly pitchy. And this is one of those ones where, I, like, it just... It started to feel really good, but I was really nervous to play it for the guys and stuff. I, and I always never want to invest too much of my heart in something we're doing it because I'm like, man, I really like this, but I don't want to like put pressure on the guys to like this. Maybe they'll hate it. Maybe Rick will hate it. So I remember being nervous playing it um, for you guys. But everybody just vibed with it. And it was one of those things where Rick was like, yeah, this is so much cooler. This feels great. Everybody felt really into it. And then we started doing congas and then we started doing... And then we did gang vocals. We wanted the ending to kind of have like this Hey Jude vibe to it. It was like... yeah friends in a room like singing together like it's okay you know to not be okay we're all not okay you know yeah so we all got in a room and did gang vocals and yeah i can run through all that stuff uh this is that the thumb piano dan had at the studio he's like you know it's in a certain key and you can't do anything about it it's not like you can really tune him so yeah i don't have the original one but it was uh it was, all, it was all out of the wrong pitch Yeah, so there's a couple things on here that I think Melodyne is probably the most incredible 
software. Oh, uh, the guitar chord. So there was also a guitar chord that I had that was wrong. So Dan did the guitars at Rick's and I loved the way they sounded. I didn't want to redo them. Like it had such a vibe. It's like they were hitting a compressor really hard and just like... They were played really bad and jangly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they had like that jangly, like sometimes it's like if the sound's right, it is right. This is one of those things where I didn't want to go and redo it. But like basically the third chord was a major chord where all the other instruments were doing the minor. Like one had to win. And uh, so we, we decided that the minor chord was going to win. So basically, I mean, Melodyne, now you can just go in and literally just like, not only can you, it's a polyphonic, but you can also find the overtones and pitch those overtones to make sure that it sounds natural. So, I mean, you wouldn't know the third chord was this one right here coming up. That used to be a D major, but you would never know it. So... The other thing I really love about this track, we can show all the percussion Dan did that day soloed. It would be great to kind of build up from, say, that the bass that you had created. And then as each element comes in, you can talk us through it. So, you know, Dan's original percussion and the percussion you added afterwards and then the gang vocals. Cool. cool. So here's that original bass. This was really was the guiding force behind the whole track. And by the way, we tried to recreate this bass like 10 times we brought in an upright bass our bass player played it we did it like 10 times and we just couldn't recreate we it sounded sampley and it was kind of cool it's like very obviously a sample that's cutting in and out and has this roominess it's kind of hard to recreate and these weird overtones that are going on yeah then this is the percussion that dan added in the room i believe so i'm doing a bunch of claps that's just me clapping a bunch tambo I guess I did do the Congos in there, or Congos in there. Yeah, I, I might have did. done those after, though. I can't remember. You know, one of my favorite things about this song is there's a... Dan did this thing with... Maybe you can explain exactly what you did. I have a feeling that you used Auto-Tune in some, or Antares in some way where I always thought it was a Mellotron that was doing like this flute thing which I felt matched so well, but it's actually a bunch of vocals that you manipulated somehow. So let me find that and maybe you can talk about that. So this right here. Yeah. I was trying to do trumpets. So in in the context of the track, It almost sounds like an uh, old Beatles song where they use like a mode or something. kind of. Or we like use Solom again. Elotron. Yeah, yeah. And I think I put wow control on it. Does it have a wow control like uh, vinyl yeah. effect that makes it warbly? And it was just a choir of Trump me doing... You know, like trumpety kind of effects. And it also does sound like it has like a Vox choir or Antara's choir thing going on or something. Yeah, yeah. It's really cool. So I think that really fits with the track. It just felt like, made it feel like an old, you know, 60s Mellotron or something. And then I also, I think we also added some real Mellotron. Yeah. So together they sound like this. That must have been with Rick and you guys afterward, because yeah. I don't think I did that. So yeah, I just wanted to kind of dig into that Mellotron thing. And I think that that is a big part of the song. Okay okay. 
Oh yeah, but you're not even talking about your guitar is my favorite part of this. Yeah. The know. guitar on this was so I just like it really brought it home for me. Like it had this um like brown eyed girl era tone. Like surfy kind of Yeah, I definitely wanted to honor the vibe of the track. I'm not always the guy that's like, oh, it has to be a real amp, real guitar. I use Guitar Rig a lot. I use Kemper profilers a lot. I'm not really picky about, as I used to be, it's just if it sounds good, that's great. But this is one where I was like, okay, I want to use an old amp, an old guitar, and I want to capture that vibe because that's what was, it was just like oozing that that quality. So I used a, an old telly, like a 50s telly, and, and just one mic, and just I wanted to like capture that special vibe that it had so that's basically all it is is just a telly into a uh, i think it's a princeton and then second chorus gets a little more intricate this feels good just feels like uh barbecue outside like this i play this song maybe the most on the record it's really easy listening oh yeah yeah this is great it's like the guitar crying it just sounds great Yeah, I don't really know how we get away with what we do. <laughs> like, this is so different from the other song. It's like, if I really take a step back and like think like, I don't know how we get away with it. I think we're just Our so... Our fans have just yeah. dealt with it for so many years that they're like, they're down for the ride. I feel like, you know what? One of the reasons Rick told me when we first were going to work together, I asked him, I said, well, why do you want to work together? I mean, we came to him, but I was like, but you're Rick Rubin, you know, like, I don't know. You do whatever you want, obviously. I don't think I said... It in this way, but it was something like this. And he said, I really love that you guys can do anything and your fans are fine with it. He was like, it's pigeonholing a lot of times to work with bands because you have these fans that are like, right, but you're this band and you're supposed to sound like us and I will hate your record if you do this. And I'll be mad at that producer and I'll also be mad at you for doing what's not real for you. So a lot of bands get pigeonholed and it sucks. Um, we haven't had to deal with that. We have other things we have to deal with, for sure. And <laughs> we have our weaknesses, you know, but one of our strengths is that we have always done all kinds of different things. So our fans are like, great, Imagine Dragons did a rock song, cool. Oh, Imagine Dragons did this pop song, cool. Imagine, like, they just care about the song and that my voice is there and that we wrote it and that it's authentic and that's it. And that's what we have stood by for 10 years and that's what we'll just continue to do for better or for worse. It's like, we'll write these songs and we we're not trying to create new sounds. We're not like, we do everything. Look, we do reggae. We do, like, never is that a part of the conversation. We just are musicians that like to try different things because it's boring otherwise. And we've also grown up 10 years. You're different. You're, I'm not the person who I was when we wrote Radioactive. Like, I'm not that person anymore. You, there's more complexity to every individual than a song or all their songs, you know, as an artist. And so we get to explore and our fans are cool with it. And this is one of those songs where we're exploring. And and look, and on the same note, I remember also being cautious with this song because we didn't want to just do throwback. Like, 
we didn't want to like just replicate something. So also Rick was very, he was like, listen, first of all, like let's keep the modernist version that you had to it. Like there's elements of it. Like there's drums that we added. I think it was with Rick actually. There's a kick and snare. If you want to solo that way, that he sure. ended up adding to the choruses to keep it a little more modernized. It's like synthetic. It's like an 808 or I don't know. Let's listen to that. And I think if I remember right, Rick did this on his own. This was Rick sitting down with like a, a drum machine. So that's on the chorus. Here's with everything together. So it's kind of a layer, you know, it's not like it's, it's funny too, because he actually, that was, he simplified that because before I remember it was it was similar yeah. almost to what the original demo was. And then it was like feeling too choppy. It was too mm -hmm. much rhythm. And then it ended up just being that kick and snare that you're hearing right there. But anyway, there was a lot of elements to it to make this song feel modern while also paying homage to, you know, the influences that were obvious on this song. Yeah. And you did a lot of great ad libs and there's a lot of great vocal layers. I think we should probably look at, especially toward the end of the song that, you know, I think you could probably just say a lot about the vocals here if I just solo them, Dan. It's okay to be not okay. I need you here with me to be And did you redo these vocals or are these extra vocals? I did these all. These are from the original demo, actually. Right. And then the gang is what we did after. Yeah, let me right. get those. This was in Vegas, this gang vocal. That was the four of us guys finishing this song. We knew we wanted a Hey Jude ending kind of thing. I think that was also a clap because that's, that's, I think that's literally the last thing we did. We, I remember we finished that and we were like, that's the album, guys. That so was... we were really excited, so we started clapping. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. I mean, that's not an imaginary gang of friends that you've invited in there. <laughs> yeah, that's no um, imaginary. That's uh, the real deal. Yeah. Those are the four of us who I guess are <laughs> one of the last friends we got. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's great the way that you, you know, there are so many different things referenced within this song. So, I mean, we've already mentioned... No, well, I mentioned Donovan and, and Cat Stevens. You mentioned the Beatles, but you know, with all those different harmonies that you're doing with yourself, Dan, you know, you, we kind of a bring in a Beach Boys thing with that guitar. You get a bit of Steve Cropper, maybe, or or, or something <laughs> like that, and yet it all gels to have a, a feel of of that kind of era. But at the same time, you know, while it's a feel good vibe, I think it's okay not to be okay probably wouldn't have been sung in the 60s or 70s or 80s even. And say, you know, a line like emasculated freak, I don't think they'd have come up with that in <laughs> that time. You know, those, this language, I think, is very much of now. And I think that that combination makes it extra, extra special in a way. Yeah, you know, I think that's interesting because I, I haven't thought of it like that. But yeah, I, you know, I do think that uh, this song, it's funny because it does, I hear it and I hear, uh, it gives me the feeling of like some light, like sitting on the dock of the bay or some, something mm -hmm. that's easy listening that you can hear a lot. That's, um, but the subject matter of it is, I don't want to get in it too much just to, to respect the privacy of, of family and friends. But this song was really directed at um, someone I'm very close to who has had a difficult uh 
a difficult life and has dealt with a lot of shit and just trying to like be a friend. Yeah. You know, trying to be an ally, trying to be a friend. And I wanted this to feel like a hug. You know what I mean? Like a little bit of like, I could never understand what you're going through, but I love you and I'm here for it. And a celebration of who you are. And yeah, that was the goal with this song. Yeah. Well, I think you certainly achieved that. And we all need a hug every now and then again. And and I think we, we all can get a hug through this song. I think a lot of people will feel that. I believe it. Um, let's have a group hug with a, a, a roundup of this and then move on to our, our third song. Great. So the next song we're going to look at is Wrecked from Mercury Act One. And uh, before we start it, you know, I'd, I'd love to know how you got to where you've got uh, musically in terms of evolution as, as people. So, I mean, the band's from Las Vegas. I mean, are you all school friends? or And then how did you achieve all these different levels of sophistication in terms of playing and, and recording? I mean, did you go to music school? What did you do? So Wayne... And then our bass player, Ben, and our drummer, Daniel Platzman, and we call him Platz, they all went to Berklee School of Music in Boston. They're all jazz musicians who knew each other. And they just were all incredibly accomplished musicians who had dedicated their whole life to their, their instrument. Well, instruments, they're all multi-instrumental, you know, incredible jazz musicians. Um, I was going to school in Utah at BYU, which I got kicked out of, and then I went to UNLV, and then I reapplied and got back to BYU, and that's a story for another day. But um, I was pretty lost in falling out of religion and at a religious school and feeling in a really weird place in my life where I didn't know where to turn. But I knew I loved music, but I thought that it, I wouldn't dare tell anybody that it was my career choice because it was laughable to the community that I grew up, which was a very conservative working, you know, scholastic very academically focused. Um, my brothers were attorneys and doctors, a plastic surgeon, an anesthesiologist, a dentist, two attorneys. I have seven brothers. Wow. And I was following them. So to tell them I was going to be a musician would have been, you know, laughable. And my mom was all about academia. Wayne had just graduated from Berkeley, moved back home to Utah, and I had a mutual friend and told them I want to start a band. They said, I know this great guitarist who just got home from Berkeley. Why don't you show him something? I think I sent a demo to Wayne. He liked it. We got together. We started to jam a little with the original drummer that we spoke of earlier in this conversation, Andrew Tolman. And we decided that Utah was not the place to start a band. So I convinced my family to let me defer for a semester and to move home to Las Vegas and to try out being a full-time musician. 
And they reluctantly said yes. And I came home and we all lived together in a small apartment and practiced all day, every day and wrote, 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 wrote and played for three years as an unsigned band getting by, by none of us worked extra jobs. So we begged the strip in Las Vegas as hotels. We begged them to let us play on their stages. They said, we'll let you do it if you do 50% covers, 50% originals. So we had to learn a ton of cover songs, but they let us learn whatever we wanted. They just had to be covers. So we, we picked all our influences, which was great for us because we were constantly studying the works of and how to play all these songs that influenced us, which helped us become even more of like finding ourselves as a young band. Long story short, uh, we lost two of the members who were married, Andrew and his wife, and she was the keyboardist, he was the drummer, because they wanted to go on and do other things. And we were broke musicians. We were unsigned still after three years. And we didn't know that this was going to be a, a career that would support a child and family and things like that. So there was no you know, ill will or anything. We love them. And, and now we get to work with them again, full circle. But so then he recruited Daniel Platzman from Berkeley to be the drummer. And Ben McKee had been the bass player from the very beginning. Anyway, so that's the beginning and the birth of the band. And then the four of us have, have been in a band ever since. And uh, after, I want to say, like a year together with Daniel Platzman, someone saw us at a show and passed on a CD to so-and-so who was liked the songwriting. And we ended up getting signed. And But there was three years previous that we were, we were unsigned and just kind of touring and trying to build a fan base. Sorry for the long, long story, but that's the short of it. No, no, it's absolutely fascinating. And the important thing is that, you know, some serious decisions were made. You know, you took it very seriously. You moved to Las Vegas, all of you, to, to work on this project and worked hard every day. And this was a commitment. It wasn't just a little bit of fun. This was a, a serious proposition. But then also, I guess I presume that all this production know-how, that evolved from working in the band and working on the band and, and oh, well, if we can record ourselves and, or if I can learn how to use this software, then I can improve what we're, we're doing. Is that is it kind of all self-taught in that sense? I'll let Wayne speak for himself on that because he probably has a lot that kind of added to that. For me, I, I, when I was 12, it was like Cakewalk, I think was the program that I watched my brother use and I was peeking over his shoulder when he would record. He's now my manager, by the way. And when he would leave, I'd steal his microphone and then record in Cakewalk. And I made hundreds of these songs in Cakewalk and I couldn't even drag over any instruments to get to the microphone. So they were all acapella. It was like Enya. It was like Dan Reynolds Enya or something. It was like 200 of my voices playing the drums, playing every instrument with just my voice, like beatboxing and stuff. Really terrible, really honestly terrible. Nobody should ever hear it. But, but it was a great like learning experience for me. And then I learned Cakewalk through that. And then I transitioned, I think, to like GarageBand when that first came out. And then I jumped to Logic and I was in Logic. And it was all self-taught. Um, and then from Logic, then I want to say like seven years ago, I moved to Ableton. And then I've stayed in Ableton ever since. So it's all just been, you know, watching videos on YouTube or, or honestly, it's not much of that. If I were to be honest, it was more just trial and error. What's this do? Let me see this. Okay, how's that work? And then I'm recording with incredible engineers all the time. Oh, how are they doing that EQ? Oh, that's what they do that gets that great sound. Oh, that's the reverb they're using that sounds really good. Let me steal that, like just stealing notes along the way. But uh, I'll let Wayne speak to his software kind of DAW experience. Berkeley was really helpful. I, not so much for like the engineering side of stuff. My major was more focused on jazz. And that's where I met uh, Ben and Platts in the eclectic electrics and it sounds just as cool it is just as cool as it sounds <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, um i was very much a jazz head 
but at the same time, like, yeah, I was like Dan where I'd listen to classic singer songwriters. Like I love pop music. You know, I would play these jazz shows in, in Boston and I was having a lot of fun. I love jazz and I still do love jazz, but it's like, you know, there'd be 10 people in the audience. It's such a niche thing. And like, for me, like just because a lot of people love a song or something gets popular, that's what pop music is. That doesn't make it bad. And I, that was always my first love was like songs that like move people emotionally and like are a part of their lives. It's the soundtrack of their, their entire life. That's the kind of songs I love. So it wasn't too hard to convince me to, after I graduated, to not do the jazz thing anymore and to focus more on, you know, pop music and rock music and whatever else kind of music that people actually wanted to, to listen to. So, yeah. So after we were all about the same level, honestly, as far as production and all that engineering, all that, we were, we were all really novices. We all started out, like I started out in like Cubasis and GarageBand and it's, it really is just a lot of trial and error and just wanting to learn and wanting to be better, you know, and just like, you know, I've seen Dan's songwriting chops have just like the amount of growth he's had. It's astounding to me where he's come. And, you know, I think it just comes from doing it so damn much. And I'm, you know, I've tried to kind of do that with other things. It's like, I, we all just have this drive to want to be better. As long as you have that drive to want to learn, nothing's going to stop you from doing that. So it's all just kind of self-taught trial and error, a lot like what Dan said, you know, you peek over shoulders and to see what other engineers are doing. And now it's like, you know, with the internet, you don't even have to wonder. You can, you know, everyone's kind of telling their secrets through like all the different websites people have to show you how they do what they do. And so if you have the desire, you can do it these days, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, very much so. In a way, the internet has replaced the peeking over shoulders bit. You know, now you're kind of peeking at the internet and looking at it that way. And uh, But it's interesting that it, it all started really very young then. You know, if you were 12, Dan, when you first started exploring cakewalk and you know I, I what age were you when you picked up the guitar uh wayne uh, i started piano when i was eight and then uh, cello when i was 10 and then guitar when i was 12 and when i was that was it for me like as soon as i picked it up i got one for christmas and it was the end of the story at that point i you know i immediately started practicing three or four hours he's a day, an incredible cellist and pianist by the way so and, he's being very humble <laughs> about that but oh, yeah yeah I don't know about that yeah, I, but I, I, I i get by but uh, yeah, and I got my first recording rig when I was 14, and it's just a similar story. It's like I was obsessed with it immediately. It's like there's nothing else that I was going to do with my life at that point, and no matter how much good advice I got, to the contrary, <laughs> I was stuck. And actually, I had a really supportive family. My mom and dad were like, please do music, like extremely supportive, and they're really the reason that I was able to, to be where I'm at. So I owe a lot to them. And you know, Dan's parents, I think they were a lot more sort of academic minded, like Dan said, but as soon as we got to Vegas and like started rehearsing, like they opened up their living room, like literally where like they gather and like eat, <laughs> set up 2000 watt amps with like blaring PA systems and loud guitar amps and synth amps and just like blaring their entire house with this, with rehearsals that lasted four hours. So I don't think, you know, that they would be okay with that if they really didn't believe in it and, and were supportive of it. So we owe a lot to dance parents, especially in the early days, raiding their fridge every day to feed ourselves. And no one is an island and we didn't get here on our own. And we only are here because of the support of people that love us. Yeah, yeah. And it's great that once you took it seriously and were able to 
make this step that they were supportive in that way. And I guess having not followed academia in the way that you might have been directed initially, um, at what point did they think, right, well, actually, this imagined dragon's lark is maybe it's even better than academia. No, maybe it's a step up beyond surgery <laughs> and it the law. It took a while with my mom, if I'm to be completely honest. I remember we got to a point where we were selling out arenas and my mom came to a show and was still like, do you think that this is going to sustain? Are people going to come out tonight, do you think? I was like, yeah, mom, no, the, the whole tour is sold out. She's like, but does that mean for sure that people are going to come tonight? And I was like, yes, it means they're going to be here tonight, mom. Like, we've been playing all over the world. We're playing arenas. Like, you know, this is like five years in or something. And it was so hard for her to comprehend, which I get because it was really hard for me to wrap my, my own head around what was happening when it started to happen. But I think at that moment, my mom was finally like, I could see kind of the stress come out like, oh, I think it's actually going to work out for Dan. I don't have to worry about this son anymore. I can move on to other worries because she was happily quite concerned about me when I got kicked out of college and quite concerned about me when I was failing in my classes at BYU. And, you know, so she knew that this is that I didn't want to be there. She always knew I never wanted to be there at school. I just didn't care. I didn't care. My other brothers cared. I didn't care. I cared about art. That was all I cared about. Well, we're so glad that that's the case because we have your creativity to enjoy. And um, we're going to look at another example of that. So Wrecked is the next song and we're going to look at. Um, one of the first songs that you've shared from this new record. How did this one start? Uh, Wrecked started right here at my computer with this microphone. In fact, the vocals that you hear on the version today were, we tried to replicate them, we tried to redo them a million times on this song. And we, could, we, we stuck with the original vocals in this room. It started with a MIDI riff that was like, dun, 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 and I had a piano. I, there's a piano right here. I don't know if you can see it, but, you know, just bare bones, basic piano and guitar kind of idea with claps like, But I think even the claps were MIDI. Like you, it was all just a very MIDI kind of, it was like a MIDI rock song is the way I'd explain it. <laughs> and I was in a real, I was in a state of shock and grief. I had just lost my sister-in-law to cancer the previous week before I wrote this song. I was with her in the hospital while she was there and watched her pass, take her last breaths. I'd lost people in my life. It was my first time though, being with someone and watching that transition. And it was really hard. It really hit me in a way that was like, whoa, the finite state of this life is really real. Every moment is a gift with the people you love. And she was such a beautiful human being, left a huge impact on me, was in her 30s with six kids. And I had to sit with my brother as he called all the kids and told them their mom had passed. She got cancer and within one year passed. Uh, so it was really devastating for my whole family. I was dealing with this grief and trying to understand it. I was just merely trying to understand it. Again, I wasn't sitting down thinking I'm writing a song for Imagine Dragons record. I've never done that. I was sitting down trying to just put into words how I was feeling. And it was just simple as that. I sat down and started to sing how I was feeling. And I felt wrecked. My whole family felt wrecked. I watched my brother, who I'd never seen cry, collapse on the floor of the hospital and weep. Um, it's still something I qu haven't quite come to terms with, but that song has really helped to 
at least commemorate Alicia and her life and and just grief. You know, everybody's lost people. Everybody is continually, and if you haven't, you're going to in this part of life. And, and um, so we wanted to capture that in a song. I sent it to the band, you know, that evening or something. Really resonated with everybody. And Wayne then brought it to life and we brought real instrumentation into it. Wayne did put in real guitars. Then we brought it in with Rick and worked it and reworked it and reworked it and then kept coming back to how it was in its original state. Um, Jim, let's, should we hear that demo then, that first demo that you recorded, Dan, and then move on from there? See, Do you have that? See if I can find it. Days pass by and my eyes stay dry And I think that I'm okay Till I find myself in conversation fading away The way you smile, the way you walk The time you took Teach me all that you had taught Tell me how am I supposed to move on These days I'm becoming everything that I hate Wishing you were around but now it's too late My mind is a place that I can't escape your ghost Sometimes I wish that I could wish it all away So what did you think, Wayne, when you got this? It was one of my favorites immediately. And um, sometimes it's funny, like you just rework something a million times and you think it's better and then you come back to it like two days later and you don't like it. We Just to give you an idea, this this session I have open is Rec 6.6. If that gives you an idea of how many revisions we had. And ultimately, like it just came down to like that original idea, like... It was actually Paul Epworth that I was watching his mix with the masters when he talked about um, a lot of the Adele stuff. Like you'd think it was like this incredible, it's like Adele. So you'd pull out all the stops, but a lot, like so much of his stuff that he did with Adele is just him playing the drums kind of sloppy and him playing guitar. He doesn't really know how to play. And then Adele will just throw a vocal on top of it. And like 80% of the time that vocal is the vocal, you know, for someone like Adele who has, every resource and all the, you know, time to get things right. It's like, there's something about that initial something. Like when Dan like first wrote the song, he had never sung that before. And it was a new thing to him. So like, there's something that's captured that you can't get again when you like re-record over and over again. Like we had a version of the song that had just Dan singing a solo um, line. So let me see if I can get On that. On the chorus. On the chorus, yeah. So Instead of like a stack of like eight vocals stacked. And it sounded great, like that kind of stuff. We we like just really tried every single thing to try and make the demo better. But like most of what we did didn't really help. It, it only made it worse. And so we just really went back to that original demo a lot. I think the biggest things are just real guitars. And honestly, this is a great example of Dan's quotation uh, mark guitar moments. Like I think this is it here. So that's Dan. That's not a guitar at all. That's Dan's voice. Yeah. 
So it sounds like like an Ebo, you know, thing. Yeah. But like, and I tried to beat that with the guitar, and it just didn't sound as good. It's like there's something about the subtlety of like how you move your mouth and like all the different textures you can get. Like you can't really do that with the guitar. So we just kept it in, and then I just you know did some real guitar under it. So all together. So, you know, no one ever thinks in these terms when they, they just listen to the song and like if it makes them feel something, then they love it. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, like that's something we learned really early on with Alex the Kid, who signed us. His production style is like, I think I Love the Way You Lie was recorded on a $100 guitar with a $100 microphone into an M-Box. And it sounds great. Like sometimes people think, well, yeah, you have to record that in a real studio. You know, you got to get in Blackbird and get a, a 67 and a, you know, fancy ribbon mic and really do it right and use all this expensive stuff. And like, I think a lot of times that's true. Like I'm not knocking that approach at all, but does it sound good? Does it sound right? Like, is there emotion to it? Can people connect to it? That's what you're trying to chase. And so I learned a lot from him because I used to be a lot more precious about like the approach to things. But at the end of the day, yeah, it is just what sounds good. You don't have to worry about how you did it or if it's Dan's voice through a <laughs> Ableton plugin or if it's a real guitar, nobody cares. All that matters is the song. So this is a good example of that. I think the only other thing I think that's super different besides the guitars is for some reason we kept the uh, Rick Rubin piano for doing the low parts of the, I think even the pianos are the same. So here's the piano group. Oh yeah, just get like that real weird low resonance and like overtones that you get with a real piano. Yeah. So the low, the lowest one is Rick's piano at uh, me slamming it as hard as I could. (laughs) And then the other stuff is just stuff that Dan had sampled, pianos that he had sampled. And it's funny because those are samples of real pianos that I'm just pitching. So you're still getting the resonance, but it's just not the same as uh, the you know Rick's. Just like more uh, rich. So the piano sound is really just a cluster of different sounding pianos that all work really well together. And if it sounds good, then we just keep it, you know? Um, And this is another one that really shows, I think, what Rick brought to this record. I would say like 50% of the record, Rick was like, let's build it from the ground up. Let's tear it apart. Let's redo this. Let's redo that. And then there were songs like this where he was like, I really like what this is. He never has ego in creating. Like, it would be really easy, I think, for a producer like Rick Rubin to be like, eh, let's redo it all, and I'm Rick Rubin, and it's going to be better. And with this song, Rick was like, there's something that just is moving here and special here. Let's see if we can make it better, but if not, then we have this. And that's kind of what we did with this song, and we worked it, and we reworked it, and we reworked it, and we added heavier drums or we would dial back the chorus and make it a little more like restrained and not this big wall but then it like you lost the emotion and again it came back to like I'm never going to feel how I felt that day it was a week after my sister-in-law had passed she was on my mind seeing her the life of her was still there like I was so close to when she was still with me that I could access like all these details about her that with time just fate. The pain doesn't ever go away. Don't get me wrong. I think my brother, especially who feels it and and her parents, like they're going to, I don't think that pain ever goes away. But as far as those details of like 
the way she laughed when your shoulders shook. Like that's one of the lines in it that I always listen to and it moves me because I think about her and how, you know, everything had so much motion to it and so much life to it, you know. But, um, and then you get into a studio and someone says, go into this vocal booth and sing that again, okay? And sing that. And I really want to believe it, by the way. Really want to believe it. I'm sorry, I can't, I can't do that. And I'm sure there's some people who can do that and they're fantastic at it and they recreate the vocal a million times. They can sing it over and over, you know, in that, uh, in that setting. But I, I can't. I can't do it. I can't do it. I've never been able to. I've tried to and it just, it's, uh, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the great thing is that we're able to record in this way and you're able to capture that moment, that precious moment really in terms of being able to release all those feelings for yourself. It'd be great if we could walk through the song and as we build it up, highlight and isolate certain parts and say, sure. oh, that was still part of the demo, but then we augmented this by using this, you know, just as we go through the song, I think it would be a really good illustration. And it's interesting how, do you think the knowledge of knowing when something is good enough, you can only assess that in trial and error? You know, in the same way that say Rick heard the demo and, you know, he could hear that the essence of the song was fantastic and the performance but you know he still thought it was worthwhile to to try and augment it or work it out in a different way i mean do you think it's taken all your years of experience is what i'm saying i suppose to get to the point where you know when you hit, know something's right rick always would say we're going to learn something from this and maybe what you were going to learn is that it was right how it was so he would see everything through, which was very tedious and really hard for me. I don't enjoy that, but it was right. <laughs> you know what I mean? I look back and I'm like, I'm glad. But uh, I think that uh, I really learned a lot from Rick in that it was all about, you find your confidence in something by working it and working it and working it. And sometimes it teaches you it was right just how it was. Good job. You did your job. <laughs> you know what I mean? And this was one of those songs it was very tedious. We tried so many different things, and, and I'll let Wayne just go through it, and we can talk through it. But yeah, yeah, that would be great. Great. So let's start with the guitar. And then the uh, this is the original um, drum beat that Dan had. Again, it's so, a drum lab. Yeah, this is a yeah. drum machine, and. We tried to recreate the kick and snare and make it better with a real kick and snare because these are sampled kicks and snares and it didn't translate. It just didn't hit right. Didn't hit right. So we went back to this. And the claps were so cool and strange sounding. It was just really hard. And I think the other, uh, the other big thing that maybe people don't realize is this bass line I think is really integral to the, to the song as well. So this is a Rickenbacker from Contact. This Rickenbacker plugin is so good. It's so hard to beat this bass for me ever of all time. Like, it sounds exactly like I want a bass to sound. It sounds great. It's sweet, it's warm, it's comforting, Pressed. it's emotional. And I just played that right here on this keyboard. There's so Wayne's guitar. My guitar. And we tried to, by the way, we tried to beat that bass with real bass as well. And, uh, 
just didn't sit in the track right. It's like that was when I, when I created that, I was also singing my vocal at the same time. And then when you're precious about the vocal and then you're trying to do the bass to the vocal, then you're trying to do the bass exactly to the bass that's there because the swing of it was perfect and it was swinging with my vocal. At the end of the day, if you're just trying to get a bass to be matched up exactly with the MIDI bass that already sounded great, and then you're trying to EQ that bass to make it sound like the MIDI bass because that MIDI bass sounded great. What the hell are you doing? Like, and that was like, we have those moments quite often where we're like, sing the vocal again. By the way, get the swing of it perfect so it fits with this because that swing felt good. And, and sing it exactly like you sang it, but sing it in this room. I don't know. It's, sometimes it works, but a lot of times it doesn't work. Yeah. It just feels like craziness. So that, those elements pretty much make up the whole verse. And by the time the chorus hits, it's essentially that kit, the guitar, that clean guitar stays in pretty much the whole song. And then you get a pad that comes in on the pre-chorus. It sounds like this. And I think that's just a Ableton pad with the Good Hertz Wow, which is like a tape emulation, right, Dan? Yeah, that's. Uh, I think I also put maybe Wow Control on it too, just to yeah, give it a little bit more warmth. Yes. And then uh, when the chorus hits, uh, that piano comes in. second verse not the most complicated a lot of simple elements just go together really well I think in this one I mean honestly that's our biggest goal always like one of our biggest flaws is we overstack things like I listened to some of our earlier records and it's like ah oh, there's like we very easily can become like a wall of sound or overthink things. And we've tried to do less and make those few things sound right. One thing I noticed here, Dan, is at the head of the second pre-chorus, you have a whole other drum group here comprised yeah. of a bunch of samples. So I'm, let me just solo that. This starts in the pre-chorus. So this is just chopped up samples, a bunch of different ones. So when you layer it with the others. This was kind of how the song started, which was me playing around with a rhythm like that. I think I was like vibing with like massive attack vibes or something like that. Like I wanted that kind of somber darkness that comes with that almost like massive attack does it so well, but it's like this very tight drums that are hip hop kind of driven, but it kind of has this innate emotionality to the drums that I can't quite express, but it's like when I hear those drums played in that way, I'm already channeling emotion. I'm already going to a place that feels like heavy or something. And I think I originally made the beat like that on the first verse, and then I ended up cutting it out of the first verse because it was too much and saving it for the end of the second verse to let the song grow into that. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, but maybe I'm wrongly curious of what that vocal actually sounds like without the effect on it that's doing that guitar thing. <laughs> My pleasure. So there's the guitar that's doing the and then there's also, I also kept the guitar that does the 
that's basically me going chukopaka, chukopaka, chukopaka. so here's everything without i think eating. this is a mistake actually maybe we don't need to investigate this <laughs> I, I think we definitely should i think we've come this far <laughs> oh what was that play that again please <laughs> it sounds like Scooby-Doo or something. It's like Scooby-Doo. <laughs> but then, you know, a little bit of plugins and a little... Yeah, it sounds cool. Sounds amazing. And was that done the same day that you did the vocal? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you're really channeling a lot of emotion through that, even though it's also, when we isolate it, fun and comical. It is. It is, but I'm in the moment. I'm like, there's no comic. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I'm not sitting there laughing at my Scooby Doo self when I'm doing that. I'm like, I'm in it. I have my headphones on, and I, to me, what I'm hearing is I'm hearing it with the effects on it, and it's like, like it sounds cool. So that's why I was like, well, play me this back because I never listened to it like that. Never. That never happened in the process. If I would have, it would have totally. I would have gone out of character and been like, okay, this is a joke, and maybe I would have like given up on it right then and there in that moment. Hmm. That's great. Amazing. I mean, have you ever performed that live? No, in that way. Do you ever perform these guitar effects just with your mouth? I haven't. I haven't. No. And that's because uh, I could go seriously wrong. What if, like, the effect went off and I was just like, buka, buka, chicka, chicka, like <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it sounds like a very dangerous experiment. Yeah, you pull back the curtain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah please no. <laughs> so I'm just now imagining you know, Wayne soloing like crazy. Then they pull back the curtain and it's you <laughs> making yeah, it's noises with your mouth. Wizard of Oz moment. Yeah, yeah. that's right. There's a, there's a moment where I supplement his with a real guitar right here at, toward the end of the song. You can't really tell the difference. Is that with the Ebo? You're going up... Yeah. It was mostly just a band-aid because it needed that little section right there. But for the most part, yeah, that all that stuff is just Dan's vocal. Um, and I, I think that's pretty much it. There's We could probably talk a lot about the vocals here. There's, um, I think the pre-chorus is cool to look at too. Um, Rick really, sure. one thing that he pointed out that was his favorite part of the song that I've grown to really love too, and I, I didn't even intentionally do it, but he said, on your pre-chorus, you're taking the harmonies and they're not serving as harmonies. It's like one voice because I had mixed them so hot. On the sometimes I wish. Sometimes I wish that I could like they're all equally important. There's not a melody. Like there's not, you know what I mean? There's not like a, the leader of the pack there. It's like this is all one melodic piece. Yeah, and so when he yeah, I just remember him bringing it up, and I was like, "Oh, do you want us to like duck these back?" He's like, "No, no, no, please, like mix it." In fact, I think when we got the song mixed, the mixer had brought down some and picked what he thought was the main melody, and Rick really didn't like that, and so we uh, we went back to this original. Yeah, it's just this was all this song was so tedious because we also were like, well, maybe it shouldn't be this wall of sound. Like, we, you know, this the classic Imagine Dragons, like eight-stack Dan Reynolds voice that's like assaulting you. Maybe it needs to be more intimate on this. And we tried to do it, and it just like, I didn't feel the emotion anymore. Like, I remember when I first wrote this song, I went on a run, and I listened to it, and I wept. 
and I don't do this all the time, and I also don't like to even talk about this openly because it's like, oh, you go cry to your own music, little poor guy, you know. But the truth is, I always listen to this music. It's my, this is my journal. Do you, you know, why do you write in a journal? Well, hopefully you get to revisit it at some point, and it makes you smile and makes you see life in a different way. And you, that's what this is, my journal. So. I remember going on a run with it and listening to it and I wept and it was so cathartic for me and I was thinking of Alicia and I was like running hard and I just was getting something out that I needed to get out and it helped me and hopefully it'll help someone else. But I remember then we made changes to it and I tried not to listen to it over and over because I wanted to have perspective and I took it out and I listened to it and it did not shake me. It felt like we were trying to do something so that we weren't doing the thing that we thought we weren't supposed to do. Like, and that was, I remember that conversation with Rick and explaining it to him being like, you know, I don't know if we should do that. Like we're, we're exploring new places. Like I've been there, we've done this big wall, eight stack Dan Reynolds vocal thing that I've done for years. Like, and Rick was plain and simple. He was like, okay, which one moves you? Like, what's the one that feels? And I was like, well, that's simple. It's, and he was like, why are we having this discussion? Move on, next thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, such an important part. And uh, you make it sound quite brutal the way he says it. But, I mean, but, he gives, it's more graceful than that, but he is no bullshit person. Like, no, I mean, he has a way of like delivering even like the most bad news in a way that makes you like him more. Like, it's a, he has like charisma to spare. Like, yeah. he's a very lovable person. And when he gives you criticism, you love it for it. And I think that's a very rare thing that people can, can give another person. So yeah, I mean, he's it's never said with ego. Yeah, no ego. No, he's got such great ears. Like the guy can hear for days. Like I pride myself on being able to really hear things in a mix, but that guy has me beat. You know, he doesn't play any instruments. He doesn't. He doesn't know what like one chord from the other chord. Like he can't tell you to play a minor or a major chord there. He speaks more like a like a listener, which is what we wanted. We've never had someone that could come in and I don't know like. It's like always been four or five people trying to decide what millions of people are going to like or not like. And it's really overwhelming. So like we've never had like an over an album dad, <laughs> you know what I mean? To like, to just sort of like look over everything and kind of have that ear. And so that, that was his biggest thing is like to have like someone who's outside of us knows what people will like and not like that we trust. Like that was his biggest contribution. So it was an experience of a lifetime working with him. Yeah, he would often say two things. He would say, that's two in the box. And I thought, by the way, I thought Rick, what Rick was saying was like, this isn't edgy enough for me. That's not what he was saying. Like, some of our most simple songs make the record. One day, the last song on the whole record, super simple song. Guitar, a melody, sounds like you're sitting next to the beach and singing a song. Rick loved that song. So it wasn't about being challenging to be challenging. It was about honesty. And if it's ever dialed in, then it's in the box for him. And that that was so helpful to us. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, and um, to finish up the uh, just the vocals on this, I think it would probably be worth hearing just all the stacks. This actually is 12 stacks of vocals, and Dan has become is really good at stacking vocals. Like, I very rarely move vocals around. Like, you know, when you're getting 12 stacks of anything, like, it can sound so messy, but I think it's just come from just you know, experiences that he really knows how to like make his vocals stack well, which sounds kind of weird, but it's like, I don't have to make sure syllables are lining up the way that they should. So maybe I can just show you guys the pre-chorus going into the chorus. Oh, I'm a wreck, I'm a wreck. 
So basically that's just 12 dans and then we just would turn the delay on at the end of phrases so it didn't get covered up by reverb and delay the whole thing so it's basically just dan has this chain he uses on a lot of stuff he uses a the fab filter pro q on the lead uh vocal lead two setting on the fab filter and then he uses the ableton compressor to compress his voice and it sounds really good i don't even have another compressor on his vocal it's just all the stock Ableton stuff, so it goes to show you you don't need a lot of fancy tools or a lot of fancy plugins to make something sound great. Also, Valhalla, right, Dan, is used a lot of the, the Valhalla reverb mm-hmm. as well to do a lot of his vocal sounds, and that's pretty much it. It would be great to go into that, hear the, the rest of the track with it, and you know round off this song in that way. Cool. So that is Wrecked, and it's been so good to explore these songs with you. Thank you so much. Before we let you go, we've got a couple of questions that we always ask everybody who comes on the podcast. And one is a tech question. Is there a favorite piece of kit that you can't work or live without? You know, I'm just going to say Ableton's generic compressor for me has been the most staple part of as a vocalist. I have tried so many different compressions, and I always go back to Ableton's generic compressor. That's exactly what it's called. I love it. Yeah, I love how it sounds. I love how it grabs. It gives me everything I want. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Wayne, do you have anything? Oh, man. As far as being indispensable, Ableton is probably the most indispensable tool I have. And I don't get me wrong, I also love gear. Like, I'm a huge gearhead. I have vintage... 47s, 67s, a lot of great vintage mics, a lot of great vintage keyboards. I love, I love, love gear, but at the end of the day, you can create so much just with Ableton. It's made producing music so fun and so easy. That's great. And the last question we ask is advice. You mentioned advice earlier on, Dan. Um, Have you received advice or through all this experience that you've now got, you know, what is your advice to somebody who would be seeking it? I mean, you mentioned earlier on, right, just kind of get on with it. My advice would be to always sing, write, speak your truth. Um, if there's one thing that, that I have really learned over the years, and I, especially as I get older, I'm 34, I guess that's not crazy old, but it's older for me. And uh, it is that you cannot be faulted in your truth. It gives you the ability to be vulnerable. It gives you the ability to love yourself no matter what comes your way. 
especially as an artist, it's, it's hard to be an artist. It's hard to be an artist that shows your art to one person because you're sensitive by nature. So you were drawn to be an artist and you're speaking your truth, which probably is vulnerable. I remember the first time I showed a song to one person was terrifying for me. And if this is going to be your career, you're going to show it to more than one person. If it's your truth and your intentions are to create art and to speak your truth, it'll never hurt. It'll always be okay. It'll always work out. And you'll love being an artist. And it'll always be your best output anyways. If you're trying to do anything else, I believe your output will be uh, not as good as if it was just your authentic truth. So that would be my advice. Yeah. And Wayne? Yeah, I remember very early on in the band, Dan's brother, uh, Robert, who was a successful manager in his own right, would uh, come over and listen to us play in the early days. And I don't know if it was really advice or not at the time, but it was really helpful. It's like, he would just come over and say, you guys, what are you doing? Like, this is the worst time to be a band. <laughs> it's like, bands are disappearing, like, if you're going to do this, what are you going to do that's different? What are you going to do to stand out? Like, what is your mark on the world? What do you have to say to, for yourself? Because, like, I think he gave us a very clear picture of the landscape. It's, it's tr proved to be kind of truth. Like, you know, bands are not super in vogue right now. Like, it definitely made us think a lot about what we were doing and why we were doing it and how were we going to stand out from the literally millions of other people that would do exactly what we're doing and doing a great job of it. Like what's going to make us different and special. And so, yeah, I guess that's what I would say to other people is like, ask yourself, why should people listen to you and, uh, chase something that's a little different that hasn't been done before. Think outside the box, I guess, as Rick Rubin would say. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. I've got to ask a couple more because Mercury act one, does that mean there's an act two an act three and act four? Yeah, I've thought how to answer this and to try to be mysterious and there's just no going about it. So I'm just going to say yes, of course. Yeah, <laughs> there's going to be an act <laughs> That's two. That's good. I don't, if my manager's mad, I'm like, what the hell are you? What, how am I supposed to answer that question? Like, yes, yeah. yes, yes, there's going to be an act two. <laughs> well, that's good news. And Album Dad, would you... Go back to Album Dad. Was it such a great experience having Rick Rubin as Album Dad that you'd like to call him up again? We loved it. I talk with Rick almost every day, whether it's texting or, I mean, he's just, he's also a friend. And uh, it was such a great experience. I would be, I would be very surprised if we, we didn't work together again. We had a fantastic time. That's great. I love that phrase, Album Dad. It's a brilliant one. You I don't know if he'll love it, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much um, for doing this for us and being so open and honest and forthcoming. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, we need to play an outro track, another song from the album to round things off. And we'd like to go with your suggestions, your choice. What should we go for? Why don't we end on a happy note and we can end it with, uh, maybe we can end with Monday. It's kind of fun, right? Yeah. Excellent. Thank you for having us. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. A real pleasure, Dan. Thank you very much, Wayne. Thank you very much. Absolutely. And here you both are with Imagine Dragons. This is Monday.
Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a moment, do tell your friends and leave us a review. It all really helps. Thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show. I'm just one part of the team that brings you tape notes. It relies on your support. If you'd like to donate, please head to our website. To ask a question on a future episode or find out who's coming up, head to our socials and on Instagram you can see pictures from the recording sessions for each episode of Tape Notes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. I believe